The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Well, welcome to everybody. It's good to see all of you. I praise God for you. Really thankful this morning uh, for the chance to uh, gather together. I want to make sure we welcome also everyone joining us by live stream. Uh, we're just thankful for everyone that's here and uh, ready to worship and study God's word together. Uh, my mind this morning can't help but be with brothers and sisters who are on the West Coast. Uh, if it's you know between 10, 30, and 11 here, it's uh, between, I think, 6, 30, and 7 there. And so they're, they're coming up on... Um, you know, some, some difficult crossroads, um, perhaps with uh, government mandates and, and them being able to gather and worship this morning. So, you know, thankfully, by God's grace, we weren't contending with that this morning. I know all of you went through something, you know, to get here, and we all got to work our way through those things. But um, we've got brothers and sisters in Christ there who are, are uh, staring down the barrel of possible fines, jail time, and all that for for gathering this morning, and it doesn't matter, you know, too much to me what your personal opinion is about all that, just that we have brothers and sisters in Christ, that that's the situation there, and so if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to just lift them up in in prayer this morning, so would you join me in faith as we do that? Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Uh, God, we know that um, all over the globe, there are, are Christians, there are brothers and sisters in Christ who for various reasons, um, are denied the great privilege and pleasure of doing exactly what we're doing right now. So God, please help that do a few things in our hearts. First of all, God, may it cause us to be exceedingly thankful and grateful for the opportunity and chance that we have to be here this morning, for us not to treat this as a common thing. Uh, God, may our hearts also be filled with compassion for those who are not able uh, to do that this morning or, or who do that at the risk uh, of, of penalty and, and difficulty. And so, Lord, we just lift them to you, and uh, you know. <laughs> you know exactly what needs to happen in every situation, so we just entrust these things into your hands. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Uh, as you probably guessed, uh, this, this will be the answer for quite some time. We're going to continue through our series in Mark. Uh, it's called Servant King. It's going verse by verse. going to do the whole book. It'll take us probably at least until Easter, if I can stay on track. If not, it'll take us even longer than that. But uh, thus far, I've had a ton of fun uh, working through this book with you, and, and I hope that you are too. And so we're going to keep going. We're busting into chapter three today. So if you would turn in your Bible to um, Mark chapter three, if you don't have a Bible with you to be able to follow along or an app, we will have the verses on the screens for you. Uh, what we're going to do today is, is quickly, we're going to look at some important details, and we're going to draw out some application from sections of these verses, and then we're going to talk about kind of an overarching principle that this whole group of verses illustrates really well, okay? So the first thing we're going to do is read the first 12 verses of Mark chapter 3, and uh, I hope you're there. Here we go. He, that being Jesus, Entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. They were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. I bet they did. 
After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, in the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon, a great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd, so that they would not crowd him. For he had healed many, with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. Praise God for his word. Amen. So, as I said, we're going we're gonna to point out some things, draw some application from some sections of these verses, and then uh, deal with something that all of them together kind of points us to. Okay, so, verses 1 through 6, the, the, the first thing I want to point out to you is that, and this is going to sound familiar, uh, and if, if you feel like I'm being over-repetitive in what I'm talking to you about, just remember, we're just going verse by verse through the scriptures. So, apparently... Mark authoring this thought it was important enough to highlight these details and it keeps kind of bringing us to a common theme, but it's a pretty important theme and that's that uh, he entered into the synagogue. Okay, so it's Sabbath, right? That's why the Pharisees were ticked off that he might heal this guy. What's he do? He enters into the the synagogue. Uh, In Luke's account of this, it says specifically that he was teaching. I think that's inferred here, but Luke explicitly says he was teaching. So again, we see this idea, right? We saw it in Mark 1, we saw it in Mark 2, Jesus emphasizing over and over again what his main purpose is. He spelled it out, that his main purpose was to come and to preach the good news of the kingdom, to teach people about the kingdom of God. So he enters the synagogue, uh, and I kind of, you know, I know that just about every sermon thus far in the book of Mark, we've had this idea pointing back to Jesus' main emphasis. And if you're burned out on it, I, again, I would just ask you to think, well, why are the scriptures, and why, why are, is, there's lots of things that happen. The book of John says, if you tried to write down everything Jesus didn't said, it would, all the books in the world couldn't hold it, basically. But why, over and over again, is Mark talking about these situations where it's clear, yet again, that Jesus really cares about his ministry of teaching? Well, um, and even, I, say, I would say different from that a little bit this week is that he, he entered into the synagogue. And so I don't know if you've ever heard anybody say this, but I've heard this quite often, often enough that it perturbs me. So here it is. You'll, you'll hear people say things like, well, Jesus didn't do ministry in, in the four walls of a building. He was always outside with the people. And people are thinking about most of what they know about Jesus, the most famous stories about Jesus. And I don't disagree. The, the majority of the time, Jesus was out in the streets, out in the marketplace, out on the mountain, out by the lake, that he was outside of the walls, uh, the four walls of, of the synagogue a lot of times, but uh, the reality is <laughs> it wasn't all the time. And interestingly, on, on the Sabbath day, the day when people came together and gathered for the teaching of God's word and for worship, where was Jesus? He was at the synagogue, right? So that, I think, says something to us. And, and ultimately, I think the big principle we need to draw out of that is not to oversimplify or 
make false divisions because we really should do both. And as I said, I would agree the greater percentage of the ministry of Jesus was done outside of the Sabbath gathering context. But that makes sense because if he's doing ministry all the time, the Sabbath gathering context was one day a week. But this is why week in and week out, we here at Love City, we're reiterating to you the reality that a huge part of our plan for accomplishing our mission of loving God, loving people, and making disciples is you doing those things in your everyday life, right? We do have opportunities outside of these four walls to do ministry in an organized way where we're doing it together. We've got outreaches and things that we do. But even that is not the primary plan for how we engage in what Jesus has called us to engage in. Loving God, loving people, and making disciples. The primary plan for how we get that done is for you, Christian, to go into your sphere of influence, to your home, to your work, to the places where you are, your neighborhood, and to love God, love people, and make disciples. That is the plan. That is the goal. There's, there's a more forceful iteration of this sentiment that, well, Jesus, you know, the church needs to get out of the four walls. People have this idea that, you know, and maybe there are some churches that think, all, all of the most important ministry and, and the majority of what we do happens inside a Sabbath gathering context. Well, we don't think that, so I don't know what to say about that. But there's a more forceful iteration of the sentiment, and it goes all the way to people saying, maybe you've heard this before, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Okay, And really, we would agree with that statement in one way, because we don't believe church is a place that you go, it's a people that you belong to, right? Church isn't a place you go to, it's a people you belong to. And so, when some, but really what someone means when they say you don't have to go to church to be a Christian is they don't mean you got a fool with the church. You don't, have to, you don't have to be connected to what the local church is doing. But the truth is, and this truth is, is reinforced and, and reiterated throughout the scriptures that trying to follow Jesus without being part of a local church is really kind of like trying to build a skyscraper by yourself, it's not going to go super well. And, and why is that? Well, this is because following Jesus is not just about your own personal salvation. Okay, To truly follow him, it requires participation in his mission of setting people free from slavery to sin and then equipping them to do the same for others, to help others the same way. And, and the call for that is to do that in all the world. <laughs> okay, So there's a lot. There's a lot to do there. It's a big call. It's a big mission. And I don't know if you're in a place listening to me right now where you think, yeah, I'm, you know, I could probably build a skyscraper by myself. But you can't. <laughs> you can't. It's not going to work. Okay? And, and this mission is actually far more complex and, and even bigger than that. You, you know, it's, it's kind of like if... If what Jesus has done in giving us his gospel and entrusting us with the truth of his gospel is he's given us a hammer that we, we can go around and we can break the shackles off of people's hands. We're not only called to go around and break the shackles off people's hands, we're called to then help them, with, give them a hammer as well and say, here, let me show you how I did that. Okay, now you, you go do that and I'm going to walk with you while you do that for a while. <laughs> Amen? It's awesome. But you can't, if that's what Jesus called us to, you can't do that by yourself. That's not a solo deal. Okay? The mission is too big and too complex for us to go it alone. And that's not even to mention that 
we weren't made, we just weren't made for living isolated and disconnected lives. We were made for love and connection with God and with people. So uh, that, it's just striking to me that it seems like people always remember Jesus doing all the ministry he did outside of the four walls of a Sabbath gathering location, but he was in the synagogue quite a bit. Made a ruckus everywhere he went, amen, right? But he was up in the synagogue doing his thing as well, okay? When it was appropriate. Um, I think it's also striking here that we have recorded one of the few times, at least that the Bible explicitly tells us, Jesus was angry. Did you see that? Did you catch that? Jesus is angry here. So if I hear that Jesus, my my good and faithful master, uh, the expressed image of God, the Bible says, that if basically if Jesus reacts to a situation a certain way, that's the way God reacts to it. Jesus is a perfect reflection for us. He is God. Uh, but we can understand how God the Father thinks about something by the way Jesus would respond to it. So Jesus is ticked off here in this situation. So that hopefully, those of us who love him and follow him, we want to know, okay, why? Because I don't want to make Jesus angry and I want to I react like he. That's what I'm trying to do. I want to get to where what makes him angry makes me angry. What makes him sad makes me sad. What makes him joyful makes me joyful. That's part of what's happening here is I'm being conformed into his image. So what ticked him off? Well, it tells us specifically. It says that uh, after looking, I'm in verse 5, after looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Their hardness of heart. And, And in particular, their hearts were hard in this instance when it came to this man with the withered hand. Now, Again, we have to, you know, it'd be very easy for us to just say, wow, here the Pharisees go again. Look at those doofuses, right? But the right way for us to read these things is not to see ourselves as, as Jesus in the story. It's to, it's to see where would we fit in in the, in the parts where we're ticking Jesus off, because that's really more likely where we're going to be, if we're honest, okay? So here's the thing. The Pharisees in that time, to give them a little bit of a break, I mean, they deserve a they deserve the anger they got from Jesus. But here's, here's the lens they were coming through. According to their traditions, according to what their rabbi had taught them and what that rabbi had taught them, that according to the Sabbath laws, at that time, let's say you cut your finger real bad, okay? You were permitted, and here, just listen to how legalism works. You were permitted to stop the bleeding on your finger. You could do that. But you could not take the next step and put some kind of ointment on it that was meant to you know, help with the healing or, so basically you could, you could stop yourself from dying, but that was it. Don't, don't put an ointment on that now because then you're breaking the Sabbath law. So this is, this is the context with which they are viewing everything Jesus is doing and saying and life in general. Man, legalism's a bummer, isn't it? What a bummer way to live and think. And yet they were convinced that this kind of stringent adherence to their rules was what was pleasing God or going to please God. Well, what did they find out? God himself popped up in the synagogue that day and he was the exact opposite of pleased. He was angry. And there's probably a lot more we could say about that, but here's what I want to leave you with that. We, we would really, saints, we would do good to keep this idea in mind in how we think about hurting people 
in what we say and do in response. Because whether we admit it or not, there are times when maybe we wouldn't be so extreme as, you know, stop the bleeding on the finger, but don't put any ointment on it. But there are times when we are more concerned with procedures and how things are done or whether we think, you know, the solution to a problem follows more along our ideological lines than someone else's. And what's most important, first of all, is to be able to actually see the hurting of the people and have compassion and care. That's going to lead you to the right course of action. Not being primarily concerned with the how, but just to love people, man. And uh, if we don't do that, we could find ourselves on the other end of King Jesus being angry. (laughs) That ticks him off. Praise God for grace, right? Because I know I've deserved to be on that end of that stick. Amen. Uh, we, we see here also, in, in this first set of verses, it's a common element of how God deals with us when it comes to faith. If you'll remember back to the time when um, the Exodus was happening, God is bringing his people out of Egypt. In the same way that God commanded the people of Israel to walk towards the Red Sea, and then he would split it, it's a detail that sometimes people miss, but, but God commanded Moses to tell the people, and that was a lot of people, to start moving towards that Red Sea, and then he split it. In the same way, Jesus tells this man to stretch out his withered hand, which he would not, he, it was almost kind of ridiculous for Jesus to say, stretch your hand out. His hand is withered and crippled, you understand. That's the problem. He can't stretch out his hand, but what does Jesus say to him to do? He says, stretch out your hand. And it was, in, it was in him responding to God in faith and, and, and in, in the, the motion of obeying him in faith that that healing came. Now, let me be clear to say this. This is not always how God works when it comes to answering prayers, right? Did Lazarus reach out in faith when, he, when Jesus brought him up out of the tomb after he stinketh after a few days? It's the King James. I just want, you know, I've been using a lot of street level vernacular today, so I just wanted to kind of jazz it up, fancy it up a little bit for you. He stinketh. Uh, <laughs> what, what, what part did Lazarus have in that? What part did Lazarus's faith play in that, right? And that's a problem. Some of you right now, I can, see, I can see the gears locking up in your brains and the smoke pouring out of your ears because you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa hold on. Because like, I'm, I'm aware of one theological camp that says, well, it's, it's your faith. It's always your faith. God honors your faith. It's your faith that will bring the healing or the deliverance or whatever it is. It's your faith. And then you got, you got another camp that doesn't really like that part, and they come over here, and they talk about Lazarus, come up, Lazarus coming up out of the grave a lot. And it's like, you know, dead men can't do anything. It's all God. It's all, God always does all of it. It doesn't have anything to do with you. It's all about God. So we got all these different examples of the way Jesus does stuff and the way God does stuff through the Scriptures. And, you know, what we do as humans, because we're kind of foolish, is we pick a tribe, kind of the one that lines up the most with the way I think, and then we learn the way they talk about whatever that thing is, and we just forget about the other stuff and read over it real fast or skip that page. Well, here's what God really likes to do with us is put us in places of tension and mystery where we have to go, I don't know. I'm going to really have to trust him though because I don't know if this time is one of those times where it's going to be me answering the the call of God to obey him in faith and stretch out my withered hand or if this is going to be one of those times where I'm laying down dead and can't do nothing about it and God just says, get up. What does that put me? That puts me real humbled about my theological framework and at the place where I need to be, which is humbled on my knees before God, knowing that it's up to him. And he can do it either way he wants to, or some other way I haven't thought of yet. 
Hallelujah. But I know he loves, and I know he's compassionate, and I know he's not looking past me or worried about the rules more than he is loving me. Mm. You glad about that today? If you're going to be glad about something today, be glad about that. Amen. Hallelujah. We, the way he did it with the man with the withered hand or at the Red Sea, it's not always the way he does it when it comes to answering prayers and needs, but it is, it's common enough that we should keep it in mind as we navigate the process of prayer and asking God for help. Because the problem is when you make it oversimplistic and you, you only see it one way or the other, then it, a lot of times people end up frustrated because God's not doing what I thought he should be doing. What? <laughs> We're talking about God, man. Who are you, oh man? Better put a cap on that. Amen. All right, verse 8. Real quick, I mean, I, I don't know, maybe you already caught this, but it says from Jerusalem, Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon, a great number of people heard that all these, I'm just assuming, maybe I shouldn't, but I'm assuming most of us don't know our ancient geography well enough for those city names all to mean something to us. I'm assuming, we got a few here that probably can, and you know, yes, I'm jealous of you, but you know, you hear those names, you don't instantly pop up like a, ma a map of ancient, you know, Galilee and Judea and the whole area and it's like, oh, okay, yep, that city's there, that city, oh, wow, what that means is, so I'm going to tell you what it means. The reason why those city names were included, the, in, what it's meaning to tell you is, Jesus is getting popular because people are coming from all over the place, okay, from far away, the word is starting to get to people that there's a healer and that there's a guy doing miracles, and they're coming from everywhere, okay? So the crowds are getting bigger. His popularity is growing, okay? That's really what the point of verse 8 is, to let you know it wasn't just one little area now that knows about Jesus. The word is out, okay? Uh, I, and again, don't hear me the wrong way on that. I, what I'm telling you is I don't have the maps in the back of my Bible memorized either, so I'm not trying to say everyone go home and study ancient geography. If that's your thing, do it. Awesome. If you want to be the map guy or gal, Amen. I'll call you and I'm like, hey, where's Idumea? Can't find it on my ancient, you know, Middle East map. Okay. Hallelujah. <clears throat> Verses 11 through 12, okay? Let me, let me just read those to you again. It's kind of weird. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, you are the son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. Like, what is going on here? It seems like these unclean spirits, these demons, and this is consistent throughout the gospel accounts, they're saying things that don't seem wrong. You are the son of God. What business do we have with each other, holy one of God? Right? Stuff like that. It's like, what, what is happening here? And why is Jesus shushing them if what they're saying are actually true things about him? Well, it's, there's two things, primarily. One, Jesus... And we've talked about this a little bit already through this series, right? Like his favorite, his favorite title for himself was Son of Man, right? He didn't call himself Messiah, King. He didn't call himself Deliverer. He said Son of Man more often than any other. The other titles are fine, but he chose Son of Man. And some of that had to do with the fact that he was coming to upend uh, everybody's expectation of what Messiah was going to do, right? Because most people thought Messiah was going to show up, uh, you know, undo all of the oppression for the people of Israel as a nation to kick out the oppressors Rome, crush them, and Israel is going to rise to her former glory. And as we've said before, Jesus came for a much bigger mission than that, right? He came for the world. Um, I think maybe we've failed to mention in the past that you know, ultimately 
Rome did fall, <laughs> uh, and, and the, whatever elements of the Roman Empire and, and that power structure that were against God ultimately ended up crumbling. And here we are today still worshiping the humble, you know, marginalized Galilean peasant who died on a cross. What's that got to say about the whole thing, right? Anybody here sang a song to Caesar lately? How about Herod Antipas? Any, any, any songs of worship for Herod Antipas lately? No, man, but we're singing to Jesus all the time, aren't we? Amen. Ha, ha, ha. All right, so that's one thing. Basically, the, the, the demons and, and the unclean spirits that were screaming this stuff out, Jesus was, was very particular, especially early on in his ministry, about what degrees of his identity and, and what he was really there for because of people's wrong expectations. The second thing is there's this, and, and I'm going to say this to you because you see this so much, I just want you to know this. It's, it's, it's a detail that we, we might miss unless someone just told you. So there was an ancient belief, and it probably rose from mystics and those who practice witchcraft, that if you knew a person's precise name or who they were, like their, their inner essence, that you would have mastery over them. It had something to do with like being able to, to control them in this kind of magical way. And uh, so that's, that could very well also be part of why these demons were calling out who he was and exactly who he was, trying to get this control over him. But, I mean, Jesus shut that mess down every time, Right? Because that's not even true. It's just a weird belief people had. But um, even though Jesus shut that mess down every time, the, the other thing I want us to see and pull out of this, because you're like, is I even explain that to you? Or are you sitting there thinking, well, that's a weird belief. Why, why would someone think that just because you really know who someone is, that then you have mastery over them? That's so like superstitious and goofy. You know? And then some of you that are saying that in your mind will go check your horoscope later. Right? So my point in my point is we have our own hybrids of, of superstition and falsehoods, okay, that get mixed into our beliefs from time to time. So we need to watch out for that. We need to understand that sometimes there's stuff that just patently is not true that people that they grab onto and they it sounds good, it sounds close enough to the truth that God has revealed in his word, and so it, it gets integrated into their belief system and, and man, that's that's poison in the well. It's, it's unhelpful, it's dangerous, and it's destructive. Um, and so we have these own, our own kind of hybrid mixed beliefs at times, and, and we really we should pray that God would reveal those to us and, and shut those down as well, right? We're all rooting when he's shutting down the demons for their dumb superstitious stuff. You know, will you root when he shuts down your dumb superstitious stuff? Amen. All right. You like that even less than I thought you would, so that's great. Things are going good. This is awesome. Okay. All right, now, <laughs> there, is, there is illustrated here an, an overarching principle in these verses, and I, I want to point it out to you. And what it is, is it's a common set of beliefs that are mistaken for, oftentimes, faith in the one true God. And, and I say that they are common because we see them at work here in these verses, I would say very plainly, but also an open-eyed view of our own cultural context, I think will reveal that they have lingered, that they are still here, and, and maybe even stronger in, in some cases. So what am I talking about? What is this overarching set of beliefs that often is, is mistaken for uh, Christianity? 
or following Jesus. There's, there's two sociologists. One is Christian Smith. The other is Melinda Lundquist Denton. They coined a term in a book that they wrote in 2005. That term is moral therapeutic deism. Now, whether you have heard that or you haven't heard that, I'm going to explain, okay? Now, the premise of the book that they wrote, it was, it was just looking at the beliefs of teenagers, both professing Christians, so teenagers that said they, they love and follow Jesus, and teenagers that didn't. They said they're not Christians. And, and they found a set of patterns in the beliefs of, of these teenagers. And this was, there was an extensive research project, okay? It wasn't like they asked five people and wrote a book, okay? This was done well, all right? Um, before I read you these, these five patterns that they found, I do want to say their, their book focused on teenagers, okay? But I think it's clear that these patterns are present in all age groups. And, let's, you ready class? We're going to do some math. If they wrote their book about teenagers in 2005, then most of the people that they studied are now what age, right? If they were all 15 in 2005, let's all feel depressed together. How old are they now? They're in their 30s, right? Depending on what, or real close to their 30s. So, <clears throat> are we feeling old? 2005 was 15 years ago. Try that on for size. How's that feel? Yum. Okay, let's get away from that. So, I, I don't think it's just teenagers anyways, but <clears throat> this, this stuff's around, and it's, it's a big problem. So, and there's nothing new under the sun, really. Um, Satan's bag of tricks is about that deep. He's just unfortunately really good at, at rotating them and, and subtly twisting and changing them to get us to bite them again. Uh, it's a bummer. But we're going to expose some of that and walk in truth in, in the light of the gospel. So here's the set of beliefs. This, this is kind of the five beliefs that, that would, would encompass this idea of moral therapeutic deism. Okay? And remember what I'm saying, moral therapeutic deism is not a religion. There's not a church of moral therapeutic deism. Moral therapeutic deism is, is a set of beliefs that, that largely people that hold these think that they're Christians. Okay? That's almost even worse. <laughs> okay? Um, but then there's people that know they aren't, and they still believe these things. So then it's like, you know, how does that work? Okay. Here they are. There's a God that exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Okay? You might be like, well, that sounds good so far. But there's, there's a connotation in there that he created it and he watches over it, but it's from a distance. Okay? That's where the problem lies. Two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Okay? Three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Four, as I'm reading these, I hope you're thinking through. Um, A, do I believe any of these? B, do I hear this often? Does this come through in the way people talk about what they believe? Or does this come through in the messaging of, of media and, and movies and the way we tell stories in our culture? It does. So, did I, did I read three? It's, it's, I think I did, but I'm going to read it again because it's my favorite slash the one that makes me the most angry. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Yay. Pop confetti. Number four. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. 
Five, good people go to heaven when they die. These are the five basic tenets or patterns, consistent beliefs that came out of you know, asking a bunch of questions of people. What do you, so what do you believe about God and faith and us and how all this works? Okay? Now, one interesting caveat. This is going to be more for the nerd patrol among us. So the rest of you may not care, but this one thing to keep in mind. Like, pure deists, there are people who would say they are deists, and they basically, the most famous part of what they believe is basically that idea that God made the world, set it spinning, and stepped back. That's kind of the way they understand. And I think that helps to some degree to understand the question of evil and difficulty in the world. It's kind of like, well, God's hands off, right? Um, That's not what the Bible teaches, but that's what they believe. So deists have taken (laughs) issue with the fact that this term, this set of ideas has been coined moral therapeutic deism because deists typically don't think God intervenes at all. Whereas the, this set of beliefs, that people think God intervenes or is involved when you need him to be. You know, like when you ring the, the butler bell, right? Or you rub the genie lamp, right? So some have proposed that this should be called moral therapeutic theism uh, because theists do believe that God intervenes sometimes. So anyways, I told you that was going to be a nerd patrol caveat, but I just wanted to say it. So whatever. I believe a solid case can be made that this ideology is rampant in America, both inside and outside the church. Again, I want you to remember, it's not a religious affiliation. People who identify with this, unfortunately... Unfortunately, this, more often than anything, it commonly masquerades as Christianity because you still believe in a God, right? And especially in the last 10 years or so, it's become much more fashionable to um, just not believe in a God at all or, or put yourself in an even more um, agnostic kind of bucket than this would be. Uh, but the problem here is even though this believes in a God who did create the world and, and some, some things that kind of almost sound like you know, the God that we know from the scriptures. Uh, it's not the God of the Bible, and that's super problematic. It's a major issue. So I want to show you what I'm talking about. How, why did I go to moral therapeutic deism today? Was I just itching to talk about it? Or is it really so prevalent here in these verses that it, it, we almost couldn't... That's going to be a double negative. I almost couldn't ignore it. I'll say it that way. I was going to say, I almost couldn't not say it, but that, you can't do that now. And this goes on the internet now. It's doing it right now, live. So you got to watch that stuff, okay? All right. We almost couldn't ignore it. It's so blatant right here, okay? So what am I saying? So more, we're going to break it up. Moral, therapeutic, deism. Where do we, so the morality portion of this is primarily seen in tenets two and five of this Ideology. The first being that God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Okay? Let's just stop real quick. I'm going to do this real fast. I didn't intend to. The whole idea that, well, all religions basically teach the same thing. If you just follow whatever religion you follow with, with faithfulness, you'll end up kind of all roads lead to heaven, nirvana, what, you know, whatever the thing is. Nope, that's not true. Okay? Because Yes, are there some principles of morality that, that overlap? Yeah, but there's, we, we have this giant problem of Jesus, right? Because the other religions aren't teaching that uh, the only way you're going to end up in 
eternal relationship with the God who made everything is by going through this Savior King who came and died in your place. That, that's a pretty distinct feature. So whatever other religion road you're following and whatever morality you're following to try to get to your idea of heaven, it, it, where that cross paths with Christianity, you're going to have a roadblock, and his name is Jesus. So what you believe about Jesus is going to make a giant distinction, okay? So just very lovingly and with compassion and gentleness, don't let people tell you all religions are the same, okay? They're not. All right. Uh, people think that because they are probably moral therapeutic deists, and that's what they think Christianity is. They think, they think what we think is that if we're good, we're going to get to heaven, That's problematic because that's not what we believe <laughs> at all. Okay, so number two and number five is that good people go to heaven when they die. So God wants people to be good, nice, fair to each other as taught in the Bible and uh, most world religions, good people go to heaven when they die. So where, it, where does that jump out in this set of verses? Well, I would say the Pharisees are like poster children for this idea of moralism and salvation through morality and connection to God through morality, right? There, yes, there's some jealousy and stuff. They're ticked off that Jesus is kind of pulling away, uh, you know, their popularity and their influence because people are listening to him. Sure, there's some of that, but there's, there's a part of the Pharisees' anger here that I can really have compassion on because they were taught by their father and they were taught by their father that if you cut your finger on the Sabbath, you can stop the bleeding, but don't put ointment on it. And that's honoring God. That your, your stringent adherence shows your love and your devotion to God. That's really what they believed. And so when, when I talk about the fact that I, I think there's a rampant problem with moral therapeutic deism both inside and outside the church, I, what I'm not saying we should do is what oftentimes happens, which is, ooh, I learned a new term. Now I'm going to go out and be a hunter and look for moral therapeutic deism and look for people that believe bits or pieces of this or all of it, and, and I'm going to start slamming them and, and let them know how wrong they are. No, man. The first thing we need to do is see what little bits of this have snuck into our own hearts Mm-hmm. And then we need, to have, we need to have compassion and love for those who have been deceived because if I was the devil, this is, this is part of the way I'd do it, man. Take little bits of the truth from what the Bible does teach and weave it into something else that everyone can generally agree upon and then you've got a bunch of people marching down this road is the exact opposite way of heading to God and that's what they think they're doing it. Most people, I know there are some that would go along happily, but most people, if, you know, Beelzebub himself jumps out with his pitchfork and says, hey, let's go pillage, destroy, murder, and defy God. That's what I'm doing. You want to come? Most people aren't on that, man. That's, that's not going to work. That's why he's a sly deceiver, and he comes along and says, hey, God wants you to be fair and moral and good. And you should really think highly of yourself because, you know, the Bible says to love your neighbors, you love yourself. And the focus of that verse is definitely on the loving yourself. <laughs> nope. It's not. Okay. That wasn't a theological term, but I think you understood what it meant. Okay. So the Pharisees were moralists. Okay. They believed through their good works. 
That was rampant there. That's part of what Jesus came to dismantle. Friends, it's rampant today. I don't know how many conversations you have with folks and you ask them, what do you, you know, however you phrase it, what do you think it takes to, you know, typically it's what, it, you know, people will say, what, is it, what do you think you got to do to go to heaven or whatever? And even the way we ask questions, it's just, it just betrays that even we're off kilter in the way we think about this sometimes. But what does it take to be connected to God? You know, what, what do you think is going to determine whether you spend eternity with God or are separated from him? I think that's a better way to ask the question. I'm telling you, if you'll start asking people that, a devastatingly high percentage of the time, you're going to hear some variants of, well, you've got to be a good person. Moral, therapeutic. We see that in tenants three and four. Uh, number three is the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Let me, I know, here's the thing. You might hear me talk about this stuff and be like, boy, he really hates self-esteem, doesn't he? It's, he just, he's angry. That's an angry pastor. No, not really. Well, sometimes, yes, but not really about that like it might seem. <clears throat> Here's the thing. I, I'm not advocating for us just constantly thinking of ourselves as, as a steaming pile of dung and that, that like, that's the only way we're going to be able to relate to God. That's, that's not what I'm saying. As a matter of fact, I think it's very important that we all agree that human, humans have value and dignity and worth. That's very important. It affects the way we approach a whole bunch of issues in our day. Okay? But the, the real key question is, Why? Do humans have dignity, value, and worth? That's with to push ourselves beyond just saying yes or no and go to the why. Why is it? Is it something inherent in us? Or is it the fact that God made us in his image and because of that, we, because he determined that we have value and worth and he made us eternal beings, is that why we have that? And depending on, if, if you think it's just us and it's just intrinsic, like, if it's not that God made us in his image that, that determines that we have value and worth, it, it's actually just, it, it's nonsensical. Because if we're just, if it's not God that made us, we, we don't have value and worth. We, if it's not God that made us, then, then we're literally meat machines that can dream that are, we, we happened because of a big cosmic accident. We came from nowhere and we're going nowhere and ultimately all of our little musings and philosophy right now means nothing. Because all that's going to happen is that there was a big cosmic accident a long time ago. These meat machines with fairly advanced brains popped up. We existed for a while, and then our sun burnt out, and we're gone. That's it. So in, if that's your framework for existence, then humans don't really have any dignity, value, or worth to speak of. But if there is a God who is the supreme being overall, who made everything and who makes the rules because he made everything, and he said, I'm going to make these in my image, and I'm going to put, I'm going to put my own stamp on them, and I'm going to say they're valuable. And I'm, going to show, I'm not just going to say they're valuable, I'm going to show how valuable they are by sending my own son to die in their place for their sins. Now we're, now we're cooking with something. So yes, I do want you to see yourself as valuable. I do want you to see yourself as worth something. I do want you to see yourself as precious. I do but I just want you to have the right why for that or else it's poisonous. The whole self-esteem thing is not <clears throat> that helpful, okay? 
And the real issue here is, in, in talking through with people, they, they really believe that the central goal of life is to be happy, and that would be on their terms, and feel good about oneself. Man, that explains a lot. Okay, so there's that, and then number four, that God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Okay? So the, the Pharisees and, and Sadducees and, and that whole crowd, they were clearly moralists. They were stuck in that trap. Where do we see this therapeutic element in these verses that I'm saying is so prominent we couldn't ignore this idea as we pass through these verses? Well, we see it in the crowds. We see it in the crowds because over and over again, Jesus has to keep juking them and go into the next place because it gets to the point where, I can't remember if it's here or if in one of the other Gospels, the way it records it is they couldn't even sit down to eat a meal. It got to the point where people, and they're coming from everywhere, Tyre, Sidon, all the way around, and, and what are they coming for? Well, I'll give you a clue because it's funny. I think this is funny. I think the Bible's funnier than we give it credit for. So it starts out with the, the account of Jesus in the synagogue, right? What was he doing in the synagogue? Go ahead, say it out loud. I know you can do it. What was he doing in the synagogue? Teaching, right? Which is what? That's his main goal that he's been saying all the way from Mark 1 forward. Teaching. He came to preach the good news of his gospel. To preach the coming of the kingdom. To preach repentance. Yes? This was the main goal of the master. Right. So he's doing the main thing he came for. I don't, I don't know. Maybe I'm missing something. But when he's in the Sabbath, or when, he, when he's in the synagogue on the Sabbath, I don't see anything about the crowds. Where were they? He wasn't doing healing right then. What was he doing? He was teaching. And where'd all the people go? That's I'm like, ooh, I'm, I'm going to get lunch now. And then when he's back to healing, I'll be back. Uh-huh. And, and we see this principle over and over again, right? That the crowds, are, they want to press in. They want to touch him. They want something from him. They want him to meet their need. They're not necessarily as interested in, and again, we, how do we know that? Are, are, am, I, am I just making this up because I like preaching the gospel and I think all this other stuff is tomfoolery? No, man, I'm just, I told you we're in the book of Mark because it's as crucial as any other time in our history and maybe more right now that you know the real Jesus, that I know the real Jesus, right? Not our idealized versions, not our politicized versions. It's real important. So the real Jesus was about preaching repentance in the kingdom of God. He's about preaching the gospel. How do we know over and over again the crowds weren't totally getting... Well, because when, when the guys hacked through the roof to lower their friend down, why, why did it say Jesus was in the house? He, ran, he went in the house and it said, what was he doing there? Teaching. And why did he run in there to teach? Because out in the streets, it, it's not like I'm making this up. Go back and read the accounts. It explicitly tells you Jesus ducked in the house to teach because out in the streets, all people wanted to talk about was give me a miracle. They all just wanted something from him. They weren't interested in what he had really come to give. And yet, and isn't God, isn't God so merciful? Because even though that was true, Jesus was still healing folks. <laughs> even though their hearts are all jacked up and, and a bunch of them aren't even in it for the right reason, he still, he meets them where they're at. My goodness. That doesn't mean we just stay there like, oh, so hold on. So you're saying I don't have to care about the gospel and all this other stuff and I can still get my miracle? <laughs> you're a moral therapeutic deist. Stop. 
It's time to become a Christian. <laughs> it's time to really surrender to Jesus. And do you understand how somebody could think they're a Christian, but really this be where they're at? These folks did. These folks thought they were faithful God followers. Okay? Moral, the Pharisees. Therapeutic, you see it in the crowds. And, And we see it in ourselves. Amen. Deism. Where do we see this? We see it in both because they both missed the true reason for Jesus coming. The Pharisees and the crowds, they both missed the real deal. What was that? It was that Jesus came for reconciled, eternal, perfect relationship with his people. God is not the God of the deists. God is not a God who just set everything spinning and was like, you know, conjured up some popcorn and is just going to see how it goes. No, man. This is, this is one of those, talking about stuff like this, it gets me, and you guys, you know, you know, you know. I, I'm cranky sometimes and, easy, you know, easily irritated. This is one that gets me, though. This one, whoo, when people will say, well, well, if God was real, why doesn't he show himself? Why doesn't he do something obvious? Why does it seem like he's playing hide and seek? Why, you know, yeah, sure, I look at nature, I look at biology, I look at cosmology, I look at all this stuff, and, and yeah, I mean, sure, it looks like there's, <laughs> somebody was really excited, that was like a hand clap, but different. Uh, it looks like it was designed, sure, but, but then why is he, why hasn't he, why isn't he more obvious? And I'm just sitting there, like, and I can feel the veins in my head start to pop out. It's like, what do you mean? Why doesn't he show up? Why doesn't he make himself obvious? He did. His name is Jesus. Right? And, and, and just because that happened so long ago that you doubt the validity of it, I mean, I don't, know what, I don't know how to help you with that. Look at all of the evidence that we have. Look at, do some study. Find out, find a reputable historian that says Jesus of Nazareth didn't exist. You won't. So then you got to look at everything there is to hear and say about it and come up with what is the most reasonable conclusion. The most reasonable conclusion is that God sent his son Jesus who lived a perfect life, who caused such a ruckus in the ancient Middle East that today, right now in 2020 in Cincinnati, we're here worshiping him, studying his word and seeking to live our life in fashion after him. Amen. That's the most reasonable answer. Not that we have a group delusion. And this, that deism piece, it's, it's an idea of God where he is, he, it isn't that he's close. Maybe, maybe I believe if I really get in trouble and decide I need him, I can, I can be good for a little bit and earn myself a cookie or earn myself a deliverance or a healing or a, you know, a relationship or whatever I wish the genie would give me. Man, that's a, that's a jacked up, pitiful, much less beautiful God and, and, and relationship than, than is really intended for us. What is intended for us and what Christ came to bring was restoration and, and, and an ability to be in, in the place we were created for, right? Remember, remember what it looked like in the garden, that there was no barrier between, before sin, there was no barrier between Adam and Eve and God. God created us for communion and fellowship with him and with one another. And, that, and Jesus came to make that possible once again. Sin got in the way. Sin separated us from God. God is holy, just, and perfect. And each of us have sinned. Each of us have separated ourselves 
from God. We have all, in our own way, like our first parents, decided we know better than him, tried to be our own God. But Jesus came to show in vibrant, full HD color how good God is, how worthy he is, and how pitiful we are being our own God. That's part of what he was doing. When he came and laid the smack down on the Pharisees over and over and over again, that's part, of, that's part of the message, man. You guys have thought you can get to God, you can be your own gods by, you can achieve this, this righteousness status on your own. I'm here to tell you. Why do you think Jesus came and said stuff like, well, your law says uh, that you can't murder somebody, but what I say, what God really thinks about that is, if you even hate somebody in your heart, you've committed murder. <laughs> What did Jesus do in all that he came and commented on? You know, that's, that's, why, the, that's why the grace only crowd, that's why the, the crowd is like, well, well, oh, because of God's grace, you just, just God loves you. You don't need to worry about anything. Your behavior doesn't matter. Your obedience doesn't matter. God's grace just covers it all. That's what, I, I, I just can't, what Bible did you read, man? Because when Jesus came and brought things into the realm of grace, man, it ratcheted, it, it simultaneously for us again, realize like, because here's the point, like the Old Testament law, when it was laid down, everyone's like, oh snap, I don't think I can do that. I know I'm going to need to rely on these animal sacrifices once a year, which was pointing forward to Jesus, of course. But then over time, what happened? Over time, people actually started to think they could do all that. Like, yeah, yeah, okay, we can, we can do it. So then Jesus pops up and says, oh really? Let me clarify for you actually what's going on here. (laughs) You are incapable of perfection on your own. You're going to need to be given righteousness as a gift, and that's what I'm here to give. Friends, we can't be moral therapeutic deists. We have to be actual followers of Jesus, and if we're going to be followers of Jesus, it's going to mean that we've truly and actually understood and trusted in his gospel. His gospel is this. You and I, we are sinners. You and I, we need a savior. Jesus came to be that savior. The question is not, can you follow the rules better? The great hope is that once you are overcome with the love and the goodness and the power of God by surrendering to Christ, that you will then have the power to actually follow the rules and for the right reason. And it'll be beautiful and helpful instead of destructive and deceptive. The gospel is that we can't do it. The gospel is that we need God. And friends, not only do we need to guard against these tendencies in our own hearts, we need to be willing to, in love and with gentleness, discuss these things with others. Because you know people right now, in your life, who think they stand right with God because they're a moral therapeutic deist. And they need the truth. And so will you pray not only that God roots any remnants of these foolish lies out of your heart, but that he will give you the boldness and the love to share these truths with others, to show them the real Jesus and how much supremely better he is than the counterfeits that the world and the enemy offers. Amen. Will you pray with me? Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. God, we thank you. We thank you for these first 12 verses of Mark. Thank you, uh, thank you for the repetition. Thank you that as uh, Mark was writing this gospel, he could have, 
We already had a bunch of stories about Jesus having run-ins with the Pharisees and their moralism, and yet another chapter, and here we are. We're on the same thing. And God, please help us see that there's a reason for that. There's a reason why so much of this account of the life and ministry of Jesus, it's showing us the conflict he had with the religious, with those who thought that they could get to God on their own. God, help us also to see the, the struggle of the crowds to not just see God as a genie in a bottle that can meet their needs, but to see God as a supreme king and savior and uh, to see relationship with him as, as their greatest desire. Lord, help us to want you more than what it is you have in your hand to possibly give us. It's a hard distinction to keep in place, but we need your help with it. And God, help us... Uh, Help us to, to join you passionately, to take our hammers and to go out into this world and, and uh, break as many chains as we can for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.